0: Welcome to Call to Queer, where we hold space for the queer Mormon women, non-binary, and trans experiences. I'm Colette, and my pronouns are she, her.
1: And I'm Kate, and my pronouns are she, they.
0: Today, we are meeting with Channing Parker and hearing her story, and we're so excited to have her here. But before we jump into meeting her, we want to start off by seeing what brought each of us queer joy this week. So, Kate, what brought you queer joy this week?
1: Oh, my goodness. Coca-Cola and this... (laughs) It's always something random for me. I love it. In Hungary right now, there is a very, very strong anti-LGBTQ. Well, the European acronym is LGBT. LGBT, strong anti-LGBT movement within Hungary. And I've been deep diving into Coca-Cola and their ad campaigns which are trying to combat that in Hungary and how they're saying we need to be able to promote own promotions that we already have which include all sorts of same-sex stuff and it really just irks Hungary and that brought me queer joy to see because so often corporations are not super great in support but Coca-Cola in Hungary doing
2: good work. Love
0: it. That is awesome thanks for sharing.
1: And then for my queer
0: joy, I actually had my annual physical this morning and, you know, so fun, but I really like my practitioner and I went in with my rainbow mask as I like to do. And as we were talking, she was just doing general health. Are you sexually active? Blah, blah, blah. I'm like, no, no, I'm not right now. She's like, and when you are, is it men, women? I'm like, it'd be women. And she just treated it as totally normal. And, you know, it wasn't a big deal that she wasn't horrified here in Utah There was this provider that was just having a nice, natural, normal conversation about what my sexual preferences are, and it wasn't a big deal, and that made me really happy.
1: That's
2: awesome. Channing, do you have a queer joy moment to share with us this week? I was just thinking about it as I was listening to both of you share yours. And for me, my daughter is really into unicorns, which kind of go hand in hand with rainbows. So it's very convenient for me. So she recently asked me to get her some poster board at the store. So I did and dropped it off, left to do a few errands. And then I came home and there was this rainbow marker coloring just taped to the front of our window we have a really big picture window in the front of our house that faces the street so i was walking up and i saw this rainbow and it was just this moment of you know i haven't shared with my daughter mostly because my coming out has been fairly recent i haven't quite figured out the language to share with her just yet but these little rainbow pictures that are scattered all over the house, we fly the rainbow flag pretty frequently here at our house. And I think for her, it really seems to be just a sign of joy and love and acceptance. And so I asked her about it when we got in the house and I was like, oh, because I had seen that she had written some words on the rainbow, but I couldn't quite tell because she's still in second grade and her <laughs> handwriting is kind of a little bit illegible. So I was like, oh, what does it say? What does this say? And she's like, oh, it says be careful what you say. People's hearts are soft. And I was like, yes, okay, she's getting it. People's hearts are soft. And so, yeah, that was my moment of career joy. Just this hope for my daughter that they're getting it and without very much prompting from me. And I'm really grateful for that. That's such a good one. That just warms my heart. (laughs) People's
0: hearts are soft. I love that. So as we get going, what we have our guests do is to tell their Queer Mormon story in about 60 seconds, and then we can go from there. So, you ready for that, Channing? I am so ready. (laughs) All right, here, queer in 60 seconds. Let's go.
2: All right, my name is Channing Parker. My pronouns are she, her. I grew up in the church in a very fundamentalist, orthodox way, and throughout my whole life, just pictured myself marrying a man and being together forever. And through my life, I have had. Various romantic or sexual experiences with other women that I just had kind of written off as that was just like this weird, strange, one off moment. How weird. And always conceptualized myself as heterosexual, always conceptualized myself as straight. And it wasn't until July of this year when we recorded. When the Faithful Feminist recorded a combined episode with At Last, She Said It, and a conversation within that conversation sparked my realization that I am actually bisexual. And for me, that realization really was so peaceful and so gentle and loving. And in the couple of months since the way that I've described that and the way that I've described my coming out to myself and to my partner and to some of my family and friends has just felt like coming home. So that is my queer story. (laughs) That's perfect. I love that. I love just
0: how peaceful you sound and that's one reason we focus on the queer joy. So often it is a story of pain and I love that it sounds like it hasn't been as much that way for you.
2: Yeah, it really hasn't. Something that I've been very, very grateful for in this process is coming at it through the lens of feminism. I feel like my feminist awakening was significantly more painful because for me, that was the opportunity to kind of parse out my identity as a woman in the church and having to recognize that that is not as valued or sacred as I would like it to be. And so, I've spent five, six years at this point setting some good boundaries and relearning what it means to love and care about myself. And that all came before coming out to myself as bi. And once that happened, I had already done all of the work of acceptance and self-love and inner child work and all of those things that are sacred, sacred and necessary practices. And so I'm infinitely grateful to have had some of that groundwork already laid because it made this coming out process a lot easier for me.
1: Maybe we can deep dive a little bit more into that and what that process was like recognizing those things and labeling yourself, right? So part of the queer experience is figuring out what your labels are and what it is, how you want to describe yourself and how you come to that label of feminists.
2: Right. So for me, I always describe my feminist awakening as very unique and maybe a little bit different. I was introduced to feminism through a book about witchcraft, and I always appreciate this perspective because it makes me feel like it also brings me witch joy. Am I allowed to share that? It makes me feel joy in my identity as a witch. And it was through this introductory to witchcraft book that I learned what patriarchy is, what sexism was, and also the alternatives to that, what it looks like to live in tune with the cycles and the seasons of the earth, what it means to live in tune with the cycles and seasons of my body, and also my lived experience, that there's kind of this experience of, you know, growth, life, death, and then rebirth that I I have really leaned into my entire life. And so once I realized that there was an alternative understanding to this reality, and I say that in quotation marks, this reality of patriarchy, that I wasn't crazy for feeling like I wasn't as valued as men, that I wasn't... Seeing something that wasn't there. I had always been told growing up in my church experience, like, oh, well, women are loved so much, and we value them, and they're just as important as men. But I never really saw that in the way that our young women's budget wasn't the same as our young men's budget, that they got to do the cooler things than we did, that young women didn't get to hold the priesthood, and men did, and... All the millions of different ways that we experience sexism in the church. And once I realized that that framework or that understanding of patriarchy had a name, that I had language to be able to put to it and name it and call it exactly what it was, that really gave me the power to understand that words and language have a way of creating and shaping our world. and. So once I realized there's an opposite to patriarchy and there's an opposite to sexism, it's feminism. And from there, things have really kind of grown for me. I started first by recognizing and really allowing myself to lean into the concept of a heavenly mother or a divine feminine. And from there, that gave me permission to conceptualize God in so many different forms and so many different ways outside of a gender binary And it really opened up my faith to a spectrum, not just having faith or believing in something to the point of certainty or doubting, but that faith is kind of somewhere in between and maybe not even those things. And so for me, that growth of feminism from like what I would call like a very baby, baby feminist to... Probably the very radical feminist that I find myself now has been this process of, one, education. I've learned so much through the work of other people. But two, it's been a lot of inner child self-love, self-care work. I've had to hold that little five-year-old Channing in my arms and just say, like, I'm sorry that... You weren't loved in the way that you wanted to be. I'm sorry you weren't seen in the way that you wanted to be, but I'm here and I can see and I can hold you now because I have skills and tools and language that I didn't have before and I can advocate for myself and I can advocate for other people and most most importantly for that little five-year-old self that I just hold inside and yeah, those two things, the language to be able to express myself, express my needs and also name what I see, feel and know. And that inner child love work has just been probably two of the most important parts of that feminist awakening.
1: Thank you for that. I want to just highlight something that I think is really important that you said, this point about faith and what faith means, that there is a faith spectrum. Colette often talks about being too queer for the Mormons and too Mormon for the queers. (laughs) And what does that mean for us as Latter-day Saints or Mormon-associated people, that what does faith actually mean? And does it have to mean certainty?
2: I think that's a really excellent question. And my knee-jerk answer to that would be faith is the opposite of certainty. If we know something for sure, then we aren't open to being challenged. We aren't open to being surprised. And for me, this element of surprise is a fundamental part. Of what it means to have faith. If I can remain open to a God of surprise who maybe shows up to me one day as a mushroom and the next day as a leaf or a bird or a snake or even a human form or none of those things, if I can remain open to that, then I can remain open to the idea of meeting what I call The other, and I say that like capital O, the other. And this is important to me because if I'm so certain in the idea that God looks like a white cis heteronormative male, then I will never be open to the fact that I can meet God in the other or that I could see God in the other. And I feel like, especially in Mormonism, we've done ourselves a disservice by naming God as a white, cis, heteronormative male. In fact, feminist theologian Mary Daly says, if God is male, then male is God. And I feel like, for me, that's been really important to remember that we can't put God in a box and we can't even put faith in a box. And so once God becomes the other, it opens me up to the opportunity to meet other people and the divinity within them. We say in the church, we're we're all children of God. That means we all contain this, this seed or this element of divinity in us. And when we expand our definition of God outside of that white cis hetero male, type of God, then we also get to open ourselves to the chance of meeting the divine in so many other different forms, which to me is really exciting and really thrilling. That is that is a growth mindset and a change mindset and what we call on the podcast, having a flexible faith. Thank you so much for expanding on that. That's great.
0: One thing I want to talk a little bit about more is you had this realization about your sexuality very recently. Welcome to the Later in Life Queer Club. I'm just <laughs> curious, do you think there's certain things that contributed to you realizing later? Like we've talked you know, before maybe about purity culture, things like that. I wasn't sure if you had any insights about that.
2: Yeah, I think... I've spent a lot of time thinking about this, and I would love to share a little bit more about the conversation that we had with At Last She Said It. When we were recording the episode, this conversation never made it in because I requested not to. But one of the hosts for At Last She Said It shared that she had a gay daughter, and she said, I'm so frustrated with the For Strength of Youth pamphlet because what they do is they essentially make two different laws of chastity, one for straight people and one for queer people. And she Mm -hmm. says what it ends up doing is heaping a ton of shame on our LGBTQ kids. And I'm sitting there listening to her talk and I'm like, wait a second. And in this like tiny microsecond, everything started to come in together and click for me. And I started asking questions like, why did I feel so much shame about kissing a girl? Why did I feel so much shame about my romantic attraction to other women when – in reality, those relationships were far more chaste or far more in line with what we would consider to be purity culture than were any of my heterosexual relationships. And this realization of, oh my gosh, this shame might not actually be mine. The shame might not actually Mm. be appropriate for what happened here. And Once I had that realization, I have kind of just been doing a little bit of unpacking around the idea of like, okay it's something that I've kind of called compulsive heterosexuality. Like in Mm -hmm. my mind, I had always just pictured myself as heterosexual. And so any other relationships or attractions that I had had outside of that, I considered for my own self to be deviant or wrong or things that I needed to keep hidden even from myself. And I never, because my my family, my upbringing in the church was so orthodox. There was no language. I didn't even know what bisexuality was until I left home to go to college. And I also felt like because of the strong cultural focus on getting married, having babies, based on my life experience, that, that was what I thought I wanted for myself. That is what I wanted for myself. And so when I left to college at the age of 19, my primary focus was getting married. And the only relationship that I had seen modeled to me were heterosexual ones. And, you know, there's a deep desire in me to be a really good girl. So I wanted to do that. I wanted to do it in the right way, or what I thought was the right way. And so I got married very, very young, got married at 19, had children pretty quickly after that. And yeah, it wasn't until I turned 30, so we're talking like 10, 11 years later that I realized, oh my gosh, I could have had the chance to explore my sexuality a little bit better and a little bit more fully if I had, one, been given language to talk about and express what I was feeling on the inside, and two, again, permission or a framework or even a relationship model that I could follow outside of the hundreds and thousands and millions of Couples engagement pictures of heterosexual couples and videos about how to get married and dating and all of those things. And then also to recognize that not only can I feel sexual attraction to other women. But I wish that I had just been told that that was okay. And so that I didn't have to cut that part of myself off as some kind of conceptualization of like Satan's trying to get at me, or mm-hmm. I'm just a bad person, or I grew up wrong, or something's wrong with me. I wish that I had been given some of that language and framework to understand myself in.
1: Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that. There's so much there to work with. First off, I want to point out a term that you point to called compulsory heterosexuality. So this is a term I think that people will find useful to use themselves. So the definition, it's a theory that heterosexuality is assumed and enforced upon women by patriarchal and heteronormative society. I think that that's really what we're trying to get at with this podcast is how How does queerness intersect with the patriarchy and patriarchal order? But the next thing I want to ask you about is particularly this part of cutting yourself off from loving women. I think that this is a part of bi as well. and Maybe you can talk a little bit about that and how we expect bisexual folks in the church to just be able to choose the right way. And what the consequences of that ultimately are. And if that is even really, like, why do we keep saying that? Why do we keep saying that that's that's something that we can do?
2: Yeah, I think for me, the recognition of I never really felt like I had a choice. I never felt like I had another option. And, you know, 10, 11 years later, now I find myself in a long-term committed relationship with children. And if I'm completely honest, there is a little part of me that's like, okay, well, like, I made this choice and I'm stuck here now. Because the truth is, I love my partner and I love the life that we've created together. But I also simultaneously hold this little bit of sadness that I never took the opportunity to really explore what that is. Something I've experienced in my coming out process is this idea that me coming out as bi really doesn't matter because I am married – I have a heterosexual presenting marriage. And – I think for a lot of people, they're like, oh, well, this is a way for Channing to join the Rainbow Mafia without ever having to take any real risk for herself. And a part of that might be true. And all of this is like internal language that I'm giving myself like, oh, I, it's probably fake. Like me being biased, probably fake. And again, like this attraction that I have for women must be fake. And what has been most helpful for me is that realization of, okay, I don't actually – have to choose. Like being bi isn't, okay, well, sometimes I'm attracted to men and sometimes I'm attracted to women. It's all of the time I am attracted to both. (laughs) And I don't ever really have to actually make a choice. But the idea that in church, especially as I consider more about our teachings on marriage and this idea that bisexual women, like, okay, well, like, Good for you. How convenient that your sexuality can fit within the normative expectation of marriage I think is also harmful because it doesn't give bisexual women in the church the opportunity to explore their sexuality in its wholeness and to recognize that both relationship models, whether they're heterosexual or with women, There's no opportunity for that. And so even then still, there's no acceptance for bisexual women within the church because there's no acceptance of all parts of them. It's only the parts that are expected that are accepted in the church.
1: Oh, my goodness. Thank you so much for sharing that. I really appreciate it because not only because it's a brave thing to do, and I appreciate that you share that inner dialogue that I'm sure so many people have, but this is a shared common experience that we don't talk about nearly enough. And I really appreciate you being very vulnerable and telling us that inner dialogue because you're not the only one who's experiencing this. Thank you.
0: And I'd be curious going off that, what made you decide to come out? Because you are in a hetero passing relationship and there is by erasure, you could have just stayed in the closet, chose to publicly out yourself in the Rainbow Mafia in a beautiful set of posts. I don't know if you want to talk more about how that came to be as well, but I was watching along and I'm like, I think I know where this is going and I like it (laughs) (laughs) over the days as you were doing it. but Just any insights to that process of coming out, why you decided to, what reactions have been and things like that would be
2: helpful, I think. Yeah. So for me, I am, and this will probably surprise no one, it's really important to me to be seen for who I am and to be loved for who I am. And You know, it's taken me a long time to figure out what my boundaries are around that and how to share my story appropriately. And I feel like, okay, I'm 30. I'm just starting to get the hang of it. And for me, that was one of the really big driving forces for coming out. I have never really seen myself fitting in basically anywhere. Like on on the Faithful Feminist podcast, we often say we're too Mormon for the ex-Mormons and we're too ex-Mormon for the Mormons. So I totally understand, again, that liminal space of not really fitting in anywhere. And so for me, it does bring me joy, and maybe even queer joy, to be seen and loved for the bisexual woman that I am. I wanted that to be a part of my identity, and it didn't sit right with me to not have my inner experience match my outer experience and the other way around, because then I too would be living in parts and pieces, and I too would feel like parts of me were in shadow and other parts of me were in light, and it was important to me that I could be all myself all a hundred percent of the time. And Colette, I really am glad that you brought up those series of Instagram posts because they they are such an important part of this process for me and for my story. So for anyone who knows me super well, I'm like super into stories mythology, fairy tales, all of that. And there's the story of Clytie, and she's the goddess of sunflowers. And there's a myth about her that the reason why sunflowers always face the sun is because Clytie has an unrequited love for the sun god Apollo. And it's a very sad story with a very tragic ending. And I've been sitting with that story for, you know, like 15 years and trying to figure out how can I rewrite this in a way that liberates Clytie and helps her find a relationship Relationship that she feels is fulfilling for her. And so, as my realization of bisexuality started coming to me, I was like, oh my gosh, I have, I figured it out. I found the story. And because I also have kind of been moving my focus of stories and myth more towards the Scandinavian traditions. And in that tradition, the sun goddess is a female. And so, I reframed the story through a series of Instagram posts where Clytie decided, okay, maybe maybe this relationship with this man is not what I wanted. And she ends up falling in love in my, you know, short six-post Instagram retelling. She ends up falling in love with the sun goddess, Suna, and they have an amazing, great, and now that I think about it, polyamorous relationship. So... (laughs) That was so important for me to share. And it also felt safe to share within a framework of myth because it wasn't this like big, grand coming out post of like, hey, I'm bi, but I shared it in a way that really enveloped all my interests and all parts of me. And the reaction to that, (laughs) the reaction to that was very small. Really, the only people who really understood what was going on was Colette, and my best friend Elise, who both texted me and they were like, Congratulations, how do you feel? And I'm like, I feel great. And no one else really said anything. <laughs> <laughs> and so it was honestly like uh, very anticlimactic, but also like I was fine with it because it happened very fast. And then over time, you know, I shared more and more with like a wider circle of people and reactions have been mixed. My partner is very supportive, very excited, very accepting about all of this. And family has been Mostly indifferent. I think for them, they're like, okay, well, she's okay because she's in a straight passing relationship, so we don't we don't really have to worry about her. And then, yeah, just mostly indifference. I think is what I've experienced for the most part. But for myself, and I, this is what I tell myself: the people who are close to me, and for me, this was a really exciting and important part of who I am, and I feel appropriately celebrated by the people who are important to me. And I am just reminding myself that that brings me joy.
1: <laughs> oh, my goodness. Thank you so much for bringing that up, because I think that this happens so often. We, The the indifference is actually really hard. The rejection is yeah. definitely really hard, but the indifference sure. is also really hard because it means so much to you to be wholly yourself, right? You had said that you were cut off from at least part of yourself and now you've embraced the wholeness. And that is such an important move. So that story is fantastic.
0: And I seriously love your coming out series of posts. It was over six days. Mm -hmm. And so I'm like, wait, I think I know where this is going, (laughs) but I have to wait. So it felt very climactic to me, but I love how you just did it your way. I think that also highlights the importance of there isn't one way to do this journey. There isn't one way to come out. There isn't one way to be and I love that you are just true to yourself, even in that coming out process.
2: Thanks, Colette.
1: <laughs> so an element of the story I think that is important to dive into is oftentimes what we're trying to do here is talk about this mixture of patriarchy and queerness and other avenues to talk about queerness when they, when those podcasts or books or whatever they are, are talking about mixed orientation marriages. I think that mixed orientation marriages are just kind of put in a box. Oh, those things are just mixed orientation marriages. But there is such a different phenomenon that happens for wives or ex-wives versus husbands and ex-husbands who are queer in whatever way. Hmm. So can you talk a little bit about what what those differences might look like and how you feel about that?
2: Sure. I can only speak for myself because I haven't done like a ton of research on it. So I really can only share my experience, but I hope that that is, is still helpful. I think for me, some of the difficulty that I've experienced that again is the bisexual erasure. Like I didn't know because the information wasn't there. And to imagine that there was a part of me that was like, floating off in space somewhere, that is so beautiful and magical and joyful and important to me. To know that that was like floating off in space somewhere and not connected to my real life experience brings me a lot of sadness. And even though I can celebrate my partnership with my husband and all of the growth and change and children and joy that that relationship has brought me, it also comes with that simultaneous sadness and a lot of resent toward the church for saying, okay, in order to be beloved by God, you have to get married to a man. You have to have children. You have to do this. And the sooner you do it, the better. Because if you don't do it fast, like then there's a chance that you're going to fall away or something bad is going to happen to you. And so I think for me, that experience of, for myself, being a woman is is a lot of sadness, one, that I couldn't be my full self for a long, long time in the church, that there was so much shame experienced for really what were beautiful and chaste and joyful experiences with friends, like, at girls' camp. (laughs) And at Mutual and in all of these church spaces where like queer joy and queer love is already happening, for that to be so silenced and so shamed is really such a heartbreaking thing for me and my teenage self to have to simultaneously feel so much love and excitement and then also so much shame about, oh, I shouldn't be feeling this way. Like, this is bad. This is dirty. This is gross. And that, that sever between selves, I think, is a really common experience, especially for women within the church, because patriarchy successfully does try to cut women off from themselves, off from their inner knowing, from their intuition, from their joy. Like, that's the only way patriarchy can function is if people are cut off from that inner part of themselves. And it especially relies on women doing that. Then after getting married, kind of having to do that same thing of keeping that bisexual attraction or that bisexual piece of myself kind of secret, even from myself, where I could just like wave it off and say like, oh, well, all women experience attraction to other women, which I have learned since that that's not (laughs) true. (laughs) I know. It's really weird. Like I – I can't, like, I was having a conversation with a friend the other day, and I was like, you know, like, all girls kind of have girl crushes, and she's like, no, they don't. And I'm like, I don't, what world do you live in? Like, I, for so long, I was like, everyone experiences this. And then to find out that straight people actually really don't have attraction to their gender, I'm like, "It's, it's alien to me. And so to know for so long that my conceptualization of the world was labeled heteronormative, but it's actually not, has been a very jarring experience for me. And so to bring that into the light and realize like, oh, this is Channing's bisexual, beautiful experience of the world has been challenging, very challenging, but very enlightening as well. I love that. And as you get to
0: know yourself more and have this more whole view of your sexuality and identity and just personhood, how is that changing how you mother your children? I'm always curious for queer mothers how that maybe impacts their teaching of sexuality or anything along those lines.
2: So, again, because this is so new to me, I always share my opinions on queerness with a caveat of I'm still learning how to do this. I'm still learning how to be bi. I'm still learning how to be a queer mom. Like, I don't, I don't know. I'm figuring it out every single day. But as far as what I've done so far and how I present to my children is basically, you know, just, they're still very young. My son is five and my daughter is eight. What I've really tried to do is just provide language and give name to things. And so when we talk about marriage, I say, well, yeah, sometimes boys are married to girls, but also sometimes girls are married to girls and boys are married to boys. And there are even some people out there who are not boys and not girls, and they're married to other people who are not. And I'm like, love is just love and it's rainbows and it's beautiful. And so what has been really most important for us is flying the rainbow flag as often as we can, because it gives so much opportunity to spark conversations. We flew the flag this year in June and we had just a random person stop by our house, knock on the door and say, I'm a gay man who grew up in this neighborhood my whole life and I never thought I would ever see a rainbow flag here ever. So I just wanted to knock on the door and say thank you. And we had a really lovely conversation, but the conversation afterwards, after he left, my kids were like, what did he say? What did he say? And I was like, oh, it was this gay guy who said, thanks for rainbows, because he loves rainbows. And it gave us an opportunity to talk about those things. And so for me, it's just a continuing conversation about gender, about sexual orientation. And those conversations continue to happen, especially with my son, as he loves to experiment with his gender identity, loves wearing nail polish, loves wearing dress up dresses. In fact, the other day, which is something my partner still kind of struggles with, but the other day my partner was like, boys don't wear nail polish. And my son was like, well, this boy does. And I was like,
0: (laughs) (laughs) oh, I love that so much. You did it.
2: We did it. So it's just these small, tiny little moments of challenge and success and continuing conversation that we try and i 'm sure I'm sure it'll continue to unfold, and maybe here in five or ten more years i'll have a little bit more wisdom, but that's all I have is just a gentle, compassionate commitment to ensuring that my kids have language to talk about how they're feeling and to talk about what they see in the world. I would
1: like to make a caveat off this question and your answer in that. There, I've noticed that there really is not a lot of space to talk about being a queer parent. And that goes for dads, but especially for moms, But because they're finding out about their sexuality once they're in marriages. I'm finding that's a a pretty common occurrence. And I would like to rectify that. I would like to ask your opinion on how we can be better about that, about what you think about how we can make space for that.
2: I think in the church, we so often label the queer experience as the white gay male experience because that's the voice that we've heard so often. And so I think that queer women struggle with this in two ways. First, they struggle in their identity as women because already there's this very set forth set of expectations that... They need to behave in a certain way, look a certain way, speak a certain way, do certain things, and marry a certain way. And then to add on top of that, their queerness, where they're struggling with both identities at once. And I think there's been far more space made for the male gay experience than there has been for any, any queer women at all. And so I I think I can speak to that experience of kind of feeling like you're deviating from the norm in two ways. You're deviating from womanhood in the way that you're supposed to be this like upstanding righteous mother and teaching your children like what the church expects you to teach them, but also you're this walking contradiction of I'm sorry, I don't fit into the church mold and and in a lot of ways refuse to. Like I can't. I can't fit into the church mold of a straight woman. I literally, I can't. I tried once, and the whole time I was secretly bi. So <laughs> it's just, it just still blows my mind, and so. That experience of trying to mother your children as an authentic self, something that I've learned a lot as I've been going through my own healing process and something that I've learned from my therapist is that our children are only as healthy as the nest or the two people that they're living in the home with, the two adults that they're living in the home with. And so if we're really invested in healthy, happy children – We should be invested in healthy, happy adults. And if we can't make space for women to be their whole selves all of the time within the church, then we're putting our children at a deficit of having moms that are cut off from themselves, of having moms who can't be their full selves and maybe can't experience the same type of joy. And so really what the church is doing as far as queer moms is shooting themselves in the foot. We want happy members of the church. Great. Then we need to have whole, fully integrated members of the church that are modeled by healthy adults. And so any, any type of queer erasure at all is harmful, but especially for queer women.
1: Thank you so much for that.
2: I completely agree. We
0: all want everyone to be happy and healthy and whole. And with you saying those words, that also makes me wonder, for those people that don't know, you are a yoga teacher. And I was wondering how that journey maybe has been part of your journey in figuring out your sexuality and identity and coming home to yourself.
2: I think for me, honestly, and this probably won't be popular with a lot of yoga teachers, (laughs) but anyone in that sphere, I actually think that, well, I don't know. Again, I'm never going to be able to give a clear answer because I'm bi and I can't choose anything. So here we go. (laughs) (laughs) In some ways, it's really helped because it has given me the chance to listen to my body and trust my experience, that the things that happen within this contained space – are here for a reason. And I don't have to distrust what bubbles up naturally and intuitively. And just the opportunity to explore what some of those feelings are genuinely has been really powerful for me. Like I took a yoga teacher training 10 years ago. And during one of those trainings, I was totally checking out a girl in class and I didn't know that I was doing it. But the thoughts that happened to me were, oh my gosh, how could I be thinking that? That's so weird. That's so strange. And then to be able to have the chance to kind of just sit with it, even later in my own practice now and recognize like, okay, now I know what that is. And okay, I love myself. And okay, it's all right to feel all of those things. And that's a totally normal, natural experience for me. And then I think in other ways, my Yoga training has also been a challenge for my bisexuality. There's a lot of new age spirituality out there that really relies on a gender binary, what we would call in the feminist world complementarianism, where you need a feminine polarity and a masculine polarity to kind of like match and balance each other out. And so in a lot of ways, my yoga teacher training has kind of confused me in trying to figure out like, okay, well, how do I fit now again into this paradigm where I kind of believe that? two feminine polarities can also be valid and no polarities can also be valid. And so in a lot of ways, it's kind of been both. It's been helpful in that it's allowed me to tune into my body, but it's also presented me with new language and new frameworks that I've kind of struggled to integrate or see where I fit or belong on those things. So yeah, half and half. <laughs> that I appreciate you being so real about that
1: though. Yeah, that's awesome. I want to Jump in on that because I've felt that too. I think everybody, everybody who's queer has felt like I can't get in touch with my body, but especially as a non-binary person, my experience has been to be like literally cut off from my body. My gender dysphoria has made it so I can't even like when I touched my arm, I didn't feel it. I didn't actually feel it It like completely cut off. And I think every queer person goes through that. I think, but it's a uh, especially hard for for folks who experience gender dysphoria so thank you for bringing that up and showing different ways to deal with that because it sounds like yoga has been great for you to get in touch with your body and be okay with with this body in a lot of different ways not just mm-hmm. in the i need to be able to actually physically feel but also allow yourself the ideas that are coming to just let them sit for a minute and either you know accept them or let them pass or whatever. Well, is there something more that you want to talk about in terms of spirituality and witchcraft and how those things intersect? I don't know enough about that to ask oh, a real yeah. legitimate
2: question. Sure. I am totally happy to share. I think too. Okay. I have a theory. I'll share it. You guys can decide if it fits or not. So I shared a little bit earlier in the episode that I discovered witchcraft and feminism kind of simultaneously, and my identity as a witch has also been one that's been of extreme importance to me. I have an idea that I've been playing with over the last couple of years and that I will continue to play with is this idea that Mormonism and witchcraft actually kind of go hand in hand. What I've noticed is that there are quite a few post-Mormon women who really enjoy paganism and witchcraft and all of those things. And so for, for a while there, I was like, why is this? Why am I seeing such an influx of this? And my own personal theories are that the early Mormon church has quite a history of mm-hmm. magical practices and mystical practices, um, especially with Joseph Smith and his family. And that was really interesting for me to find out as I read D. Michael Quinn's book, Early Mormonism and the Magical Worldview. And another idea that I've been kind of playing with along those lines is I really find Mormonism to be such a compellingly placed spirituality in that it's really belongs nowhere. Like it's this religion that's kind of like a little bit Christian, but not. It's this religion that like had a little bit of pagan roots, but not. And it's this religion that has so many influences from so many other types of spirituality that it can't ever really be, at least from what I found, and this is like gospel according to Channing, <laughs> it can't ever really be like pure, true Mormonism, because it's accepted influences from so many other sources. And so for me, I really find that Mormonism is, in and of itself, kind of queer that it really is no one single thing all of the time and that it can change and shift and incorporate so many other different elements. And I think in the same way, like my identity as a Mormon witch is in and of itself queer. And so it just feels really natural to embrace this in-between space, this bisexual space where I can just say, I don't have to choose. I get frustrated at a lot of people who say, you have to choose. And I'm like, I can't. I'm compelled by both. Both are interesting to me. I find both options attractive. And that... And witchcraft has also brought me just so much, kind of in that same space as yoga, so much acceptance to be able to open myself up again to surprises, to something different, to a new identity, to a different interpretation, to more language, and also more welcoming. That has been, honestly, one of the most important aspects of witchcraft for me is this recognition that everything around me is alive. That's something that's called animism, this idea that all of the elements and animals and plants and rocks and trees and waters. They're all alive. They all have their own consciousness. And that has been really important for me because especially in my transition in and out and in and out again of Mormonism, it's very lonely, that liminal space. And so to be able to find companionship in the world around me has been incredibly incredibly important and has taught me to trust again, especially in a community that I thought was only bad. And here now, again, as a 30-year-old queer woman, I'm finding again and again and again people like you, Colette, people like you, Kate, who are like, I'm also in this weird in-between space. Can we be friends? And I've been very, very grateful for that.
0: (laughs) Absolutely, that's pretty much how I make my friends you're weird too, let's be friends perfect, <laughs> that's my favorite way
1: this actually reminds me of a question I did ha- have, I wanted to ask you because you do a lot of history for faithful feminists, you do a lot of history mm-hmm. of the church, especially this year with DNC, that we're spending so much time this year thinking through the 19th century restoration and when you look at the restoration, like you're saying there is the, there are these spiritual mysticism all sorts of acts that we've kind of sanitized out of Mormonism, including the queerness. I think there's queerness that we've sanitized, but is there room Mormons particularly are saying queer folks have the opportunity to just enter into mixed orientation marriages or just choose the right marriage. But is there really space within Mormonism for us to talk about what it means to, actually fall in love with somebody and be in love with somebody? And is that something that the the 19th century did have or didn't have? Do you think that you have an answer to that or an idea about that?
2: So what I found mostly through my research about polygamy for our series this week is that a lot of times marriages weren't always about romance. And especially in the 19th century, especially once the Mormons got to Utah, because at that point it was about survival. And a lot of the times it wasn't necessarily about who you loved or who you wanted to be with forever. And I think, I hate this phrase, but I do think like that's just a product of the time. Like that's how people viewed partnerships and viewed marriages. And I think that our definition of a relationship or loving relationship has changed since then, especially culturally. And I'm not necessarily sure that the church has caught up to that. I think that couples have... Found a way to incorporate love and romance into their marriage, but I think especially with so much emphasis on eternal families. And I grew up hearing that the divorce rate in the church was very, very low, only to find out later that it's actually pretty on par with the rest of the nation. And this idea that you have to kind of stick it out no matter what happens. And I think also the emphasis on being married very, very young. I am not the same person that I was at 19 years old. Like, thank goodness. And I thought it about a lot since. Like, I probably wouldn't have married the same person that I did when I was so young. And obviously, you know, grass is greener. Things would change, and we would just have different challenges in that relationship. But I think does Mormonism have the space to explore love and romance? I think it's a two part answer. Again, like, do I think that it currently has that space? No. Do I think that we can? create that space within Mormonism? Absolutely. We have so much potential, so much language, so many frameworks that we could use for that, that it could absolutely happen if we wanted it to. And I have a strong belief in the effectiveness of grassroots efforts. And I'm excited by the possibility of everyday members just changing the language around marriage, romance, love, all of those things. And to kind of see it as a ground up change as far as our rhetoric about marriage. So I do think there's a mismatch between the potential and what we're currently seeing in the church. And I hope that we can kind of bring those two things together into alignment.
1: Great. Thank you. I agree. I agree completely. (laughs) (laughs) I think
0: one question I have, that's kind of maybe broad, but how have you come to know yourself so well? Like, I really appreciate your self-awareness and inner knowing and trusting and developing your gifts. And I was just wondering if you have any words of wisdom around that to help
2: others who may be listening. So my first funny answer, and then I'll give my real one. There is Perfect. a TikTok that I've seen that they're like, the, the person is like, how did you get so wise? And the other person's like, it's trauma, baby. <laughs> I saw that one. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my gosh, that's my that's my life. Like That's exactly how. That's a secret sauce and I don't recommend it to anyone. But honestly, as far as self-knowledge and insight, this is going to kind of sound conceited, but I really do think that I have a talent for it. Like we talk about spiritual gifts and we talk about like – talents that God gives us. And I think for me, the blessing and the curse of such intense introspection really is a gift that I've been incredibly thankful for. I also would probably attribute it to a little bit of ADHD and a little bit of OCD, very much obsessed with being a good person, getting it right, and then having these hyper focuses on spirituality and self-knowledge. I think all of those come into play. But as far as like what skills and tools and frameworks have really been helpful for me, I always tell people my secret is therapy. I've seen a therapist weekly for the last two and a half years and have been in and out of therapy long, long, long before that. And I've been so grateful for the way that I've been able to be witnessed and challenged in that space. And that's just been a real gift. So As much as I want to take credit for my own awesomeness, really what it comes down to is having those people in my life who have been able to witness and encourage me to share my voice and share my story and have given me space to explore. So it's kind of like all those things. It's me being awesome, but it's also all of the other people in my life being awesome, too. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) And I want to
0: thank you just for being so open and sharing with us today and sharing with people through the Faithful Feminist podcast, through your personal Instagram. I know I've been blessed by your insights there and your rune readings. They've been lovely and I've gotten those from you. So just thank you so much for all that you do.
2: Oh, I love you, Colette. And Kate, thank you. Thank you so much. Like. I feel like Kate and I became friends not even that long ago. It's only been a couple of months, but the obsession is real. So I hope it's both. I, I hope it goes both ways.
1: I guess that we could talk about that a little bit. Channing and I met at Colette's house when we we'd been talking for so long, as happens in yep. these spaces when you've talked for so long on on social media, and then you meet the person, yep. and it's just like, oh, oh my goodness,
0: <laughs> <laughs> you. You're real. I can be real life friends. <laughs> yeah. I follow
1: everything you do. Yep, that's yeah. It went. I
0: promise, I'm not a
1: stalker. Yeah, it went. It went <laughs> both ways, Jenny. Thank you. Good. Good.
0: <laughs> Thanks for listening. We appreciate you joining us today. Please feel free to follow, rate, and review. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Call to Queer. See you next time.